Hey everybody and welcome to episode 6 of season 2 of Mastication Nation, the podcast that features about an hour and a half of Alex breathing, apparently. <laughs> I called you out on that one, I'm sorry. I'm not, I know you know, not just you, our good friend Chris Ratcliffe was like, hey, <laughs> and he's right, and he's right, I was, I was acutely aware of that. I thought that my pop shield would fix it in the last episode, apparently it didn't. Uh, and so I'm trying a whatever this fuzzy thing is called and, and turning my game down a little bit. So hopefully, because, uh, yeah, I would imagine that was massively disconcerting if you were listening to this on headphones. Alex is launching an ASMR uh, channel. Yeah, this. listen to me breathe. <laughs> I'm I'm you know what? Judging by some of the comments I've ever, I've had on my YouTube channel over the years, uh, I'm I'm pretty sure that there's one or two people that. I could probably do like an OnlyFans breathing podcast <laughs> and make a decent living. <laughs> there you go. There you go. It's the new world out there. Yeah. So anyway, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's it's been a schizophrenic week as far as uh, as far as living in Colorado. We've been having some 70 degree, 80 degree days. I was looking at some some houses last week and. Uh, it was like a California summer, and then now I'm looking out the window and it's snowing. So, you know. Wow. It's just the way of the world. But I'm much less anxious about going out in the world because I've had my first shot. I feel very good about that. I got my second shot coming up in like two weeks. Nice. I haven't, yeah, I had mine too. And uh, my first one, oh, we, we do it a little bit differently, so I have to wait until June to get my second one. But Oof. yeah, I do feel slightly less... Uh, uh, vulnerable although i'm still taking all the same precautions and you know it's great not having to deal with people generally are you, are you a pfizer fanatic or a moderna mob or what are you guys astrazeneca blood clotter i guess <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah you guys don't got moderna out there yet we're the, we're the I, we do well we just got it this week um but yeah you know what they could have i don't i didn't really care um I'm I'm very happy to have it. Um, if I can implore anybody listening to go get yours, please, please go get yours. Yeah, exactly. Our good friend Alex Ostriker is on a plane, and anybody knows Alex, he's obsessed with airplanes and trains, and he's on a plane for the first time in 400 and odd days oh. uh, today because uh, nice. he's fully vaccinated and feels like he he's comfortable to to head up to Utah for for the weekend. That's great. That's great. Yeah, I, I've I've flown a few times in the last year, and I don't. I, I never felt unsafe. I just don't. It's not fun. Yeah. Um. So I think that, you know, there's a big difference, and there's nowhere to go except you know, I go, I go to go to to the U.S. because I can. Yeah. Um. But it's not it's not nearly as fun. So I'm looking forward to the rest of the world getting vaccinated and the wonderful world of food opening back up to us all. Um. If I can speak selfishly. Exactly. Yeah. Definitely seeing some uh, some new places popping up, some new restaurants in the area who are have hiring signs in the window. So that's a, a good sign for everybody. Yeah, we opened back up here uh, on Monday for outdoor and then middle of May for indoor. And I know that California, everything's open. I in the in the times I've been back, which uh, are limited, I have not felt comfortable doing that at all. Uh, even in over the summer when I was there, out even sitting outside, I just I didn't feel right. But I'm um, I'm hoping that'll wear off. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think we'll we'll understand the new cultural norms quite quickly as the weather gets better. 
Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, so it's it's kind of funny that it's supposed to absolutely piss it down here on the first day that <laughs> <laughs> the pub gardens are open. But I think most of us will will still be will still be out there. Um, but yeah, I think uh, I, I'm looking forward to getting back out into the world of food. I do miss a lot of a lot of, I, you know, I, I've said this ad nauseum to anybody that will listen, really. But as soon as something's taken away from you, you just instantly crave it, mm-hmm. like shones oh, it. Did I mention and, this last week? I was just like, you know, I really want hot chicken. Never had it, but I can't have it now. Therefore, I want it. Why can't you have hot chicken? Because I don't live near Nashville. Oh, well, I mean, it does. you can get it, like, at Chick-fil-A. I, <laughs> I meant, like, in the sense of, like, going and trying something I've never had before. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of with you on that. There are there are certain things that uh, that I miss. I miss terribly. And you're right. Like, I've always wanted to try well, yeah, now you've said that. I want that, too. Nashville <laughs> chicken in Nashville. Memphis barbecue. I have a shirt from uh, a barbecue joint in Memphis I went to once. I, I think I told the story. It might have even predated Mastication Nation, but I was there for a speaking gig at FedEx World Headquarters. And my flight was at like 1 p.m. or something. And I was like, I'm not coming to Memphis and not eating barbecue. So I walked up and down like this old street like I, I like memphis old i don't know anything about memphis so i'm probably describing this massively inaccurately but it was like this it's like old old memphis and just sort of pressed my face up against all these barbecue <laughs> joints to see if anybody was actually open at like 10 30 in the morning and there was one place that opened at 11 and i was like the first in line and it was so good and uh i got myself a t-shirt and some like of their rub and all of that and i can't i i i kind of want to go back and explore more of that part of the world yeah absolutely Uh, that's definitely a place that will probably be lower on my list until they get their ash together but uh i definitely want i got some good barbecue on me but can't beat the south for the barbecue yeah no no i think it's true um so dubai i no one called us out for slightly no cheating I, on location so that's good i think it was a it was a compelling enough place with Definitely. a rich enough cosmopolitan background that it definitely and we could have talked for hours about it but um we try to keep these to about an hour um but yeah definitely felt like it was somewhere that i thought we might have got some crap for i thought that maybe you know i don't want to gloss over everything that's happening in dubai or you know what's happening in Jordan right now, which is crazy. But like that whole area is delicate to talk mm-hmm. about sometimes. Um, but you know we don't want to shy away from that. No, no, and uh, you know it's like you say it's this. When you take away the <clears throat> anything, well, not, not anything political because that's important, but but just the sort of assumptions of Dubai, and you look at how how layered it is and how complicated it is, just from a food culture perspective, I think that. Like you say, we could have talked for hours there, but um, it was nice uh, to get uh, a little bit of, uh, of a shout out from our friends at uh, at Frying Pan Adventures, who I, of course, gushed about in the episode. They were delighted that we, we mentioned them uh, in the episode. And of course, if you're ever in Dubai, when things get back to normal, do, do look them up because they really are fantastic and they do such good work. And you're going to discover things that you never knew existed like like Greg and I did on that, on that trip. So I'm glad that... Um, we had an opportunity to talk about them, but it was going all the way back to Croatia. We've had um, this ongoing conversation about mussels 
I think yeah. you were you, you made you made an inadvertently quasi controversial statement about. Yeah, oh, so no, actually, this is going back to Belgium, isn't it? It's going back to Belgium, because yeah. because um, Zan was saying that Croatia has better mole fruit than, or just mussels in general, than uh, than Belgium, which was nice because it led into the next episode. Mm. And we asked him for like, you know, back up your claims right. there. Yeah. And he said, uh, could be a personal preference. Croatia style mussels are a much lighter dish as it's made with olive oil and garlic instead of butter and shallots. Essentially, you're comparing sunny, healthy, and happy Mediterranean food versus heavy northern soul food. I think he's implying that you have to be sad to like soul food. Like, I get that, like, Mediterranean food is light and crisp and healthy, but uh, I'm not mad or angry when I'm eating soul food, but I get what you're saying. No, I, I mean, you know, olive oil and garlic versus butter and shallots. I mean, I don't think you can go wrong with either of those. Mm -hmm. They both sound like amazing uh, combinations. So I, I don't think I had mussels when I was in Croatia, but now I kind of feel like I want to. You have to go back. Uh, yeah. And then our, our, our good friend Chris Rad, uh, Ratcliffe basically was – making fun of me a bit, a bit i guess uh mastication and nation the podcast not afraid to ask the tough questions like mm -hmm. what's your go-to unusual cut of steak when i was talking about bevets and and flat iron steaks and you know all those fun stuff so you know if it sparked a little bit of a conversation around the old wireless uh that <laughs> you know what's your what's your classic non-t-bone or filet steak option you know let us know i'd love to hear some of the other options that we're missing i obviously where i am in denver i see weird things that are like what is that you're just weirdly marketing things but i was in whole food in the butcher section and it was like a denver steak i'm like what the f what is that like and now i have to go find that out oh so you didn't ask no i was generally i try not to make small talk when i'm uh wearing a mask <laughs> i yeah i think um that's definitely a conversation worth having uh, what did we do for S in the uh, previous go around? Oh, in the previous go around, we did supplies. Supplies. So, yeah, I think if we'd ever done it again, we should we would have done steak. Because steak. I think that uh, that those more unusual cuts of beef generally are worth exploring. Mm -hmm. I mean, tri-tip, you know, when you're from the you know west of the Rockies – everybody knows what tri-tip is and it's sort of this universally beloved it's like the go-to cut for barbecue when you've got more than like three or four people outside that region it's no one knows what it is and you you know i i had to like you have to have a competent butcher to be able to describe to them where on the cow it is and mm -hmm. then for them to go well we you know they'd have to have an intact primal to be able to get it for you in the first place yep because but it's such a great half piece of, of meat becomes a different steak and half of it becomes a roast basically exactly exactly They're, you have to catch them before they've they've butchered the primal and also has to be worth their while um but you know like bavette is a very good uh value piece of or cut um, yeah yeah and it's, there are there are these tricks of the trades like i've seen there's an episode of uh good eats where alton brown is he goes to costco and buys whole um tenderloins uh because mm. you know there's two per animal because they go down both sides of the of the spine 
um, and you can buy them what they call Pismo, which is like peeled in solution, something, something, uh, and they're in vacuum sealed, uh, vacuum sealed bags, and they haven't been butchered really. And he butchers them at home, and you they, there's a uh, you know a, a tenderloin is like a, a baseball bat, and um, but there's this like meat that goes along the side that generally is pulled away or, or butchered off when you get it as your home consumer. And he said this is the greatest butcher hack of all time it's like the best meat that gets thrown into like stew meat or like you know taken home by the butcher and it's just like fast cook bistro style and doesn't cost you you know 50 bucks a pound yeah tenderloin would all all, all stuff like that is great and i think if you look to our neighbor or to your neighbors to the south and actually i suppose my neighbors to the south as well they're very good at finding those type of things Mm -hmm. i think you know things like oxtail Beef cheek are massively overlooked because people are intimidated or grossed out by the fact that it's like a tail or cheek. Yeah. Lengua, I mean, delicious tongue, yeah, beef tongue, absolutely delicious, tender cheek as anything. And co- cheek and collar are the best cuts of meat on any animal, fish, uh, oh, land animal, absolutely. everything. Cheek and collar. If you get the chance, go for it. They sometimes require a little bit of know-how to take care of, but they'll always be the best cuts. Um, but yeah, so maybe we'll do a a, a middle of the uh, a middle of the country rotation break to do a an old school specific item. Yeah, we could do like one of those Time Magazine specials. It's like it's not full. It's not like a normal issue. It's like a you know. Or just the you know Doctor Who Christmas special. We just, there you like, go. It's completely outside of the. Yeah, hopefully it won't take us till Christmas to get to. <laughs> uh, actually, it might. <laughs> you never know. Might, um, and then might. one other piece of uh, feedback we got from ORD to anywhere. Um, I apologize, or we both apologize. We've been forgetting to really push out the links on social media when we finish an episode. Um, and he said, thank God I saw this because I I'm, I unfollowed this pod, podcast because I thought it had died after not posting for a year. Plowing That's through a episodes. Assumption. It is a reasonable assumption. Like if you don't hear from somebody in in eighteen months, I, let's just assume they're not doing that proud of it anymore. But he said, uh, plowing through the episodes during workouts now. Highly recommended for anybody who loves food and travel. Do you get off the treadmill even hungrier than you started? Like, are you? Is it? Yeah. Inspiring you to eat something when you're done. I it's hold- funny. Last spring. Um, when I was really running a long way on my runs, I started listening to podcasts and audiobooks for the first half, and then I would have to listen to like Rage Against the Machine to <laughs> get me home. <laughs> um, and I started listening to uh, one of the, I think it was, what's the, what's the Bourdain audio? Oh, Cook's Tour. Yeah. Um, That's hard, hard to find. And I was like, I can't do this. It's just making me, because it's very, very, very food. Like yes. actual food centric, you know, pornographic uh, descriptions of meals and all of that. I was like, I can't, I can't do this. <laughs> it's not helping. My blood sugar is like, what are you doing? <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, if, keep keep coming with the feedback. Let us know, uh, you know, about any of the places that we've touched upon. And like we said, we have an entire back catalog of ingredients. So if there's anything you want us to revisit as things are opening back up, what have you been craving? What individual, like, because obviously countries are going to be harder to get to, but restaurants are going to be opening back up wherever you are in the world. So if there's a specific episode that we did or you want us to revisit in some capacity, like, oh, man, I just got nachos again for the first time. Oh, my God, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, let us know. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Again, we welcome you. And thank you for your feedback, guys, anybody that's been in touch. Uh, so it is Friday. Have we ever recorded on a Friday before? No. Usually if we pull a, a midweeker, it's a Monday, and it's usually because I have the day off. But I'm sneaking this one in during my lunch break. Yeah, that's and that's on me. I wasn't able to record last weekend, but uh, but here we are. Uh, so we'll be a little bit late on this one. That's okay, though. Uh, so it's Friday. It's it's a work day for you. Uh, yes. I guess it's technically a work day for me as well, but whatever. It's eight fifteen at night. Uh, are you are you imbibing? No, no. I'm drinking some high quality H two O, a large hydro flask. Yeah. So Will's actually showing me on the camera that he's got a bottle of Jim Beam open <laughs> next to him. <laughs> My, Dustin, if you're listening to this, no, I'm not. <laughs> no, no, I'm teasing. He really does have a bottle of water. Uh, how very um, restrained of you. Yeah. I got a lot of beer in the house, which I, I'm not massively happy about. I've been trying to limit it so I don't always have extra beer in the house because that way dangerous drinking habits lie. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, yeah, we had curry the other night, and I just really wanted a Pilsner with it or a log with it. And so had a had a very good tikka masala and, uh, nice. and uh, wanted some beer with it. Not, that wasn't the best thing, though, but we'll get on to that in a second. What are you drinking? This Okay, this is driving me crazy. There's a word, and I couldn't remember it because my mother, our mother, always uses it. How very abstemious of you. Yes, yes. Abstemious. That's a good word. I will tell you the definition of abstemious right now, but it's basically like indulging only very moderately in something, especially food and drink. So it's not as abstemious, really, because you're not in, in, uh, indulging at all. I mean, I will once I get home later today i mean i'm at home right now but i gotta when you clock out. off yeah when i clock off exactly what am i drinking i so whenever i'm looking for a wine i automatically and am inexorably drawn to spanish really yeah hmm. rioja rioja as they say here i don't know why um <laughs> but yeah um because they rarely seem to let me down I think with French, the, the, you know, they produce so many different varietals and there's so many different regions. Rioja, like Champagne, is a, you know, very strictly defined and protected definition. So, you know, once you, uh, you know, it's always made from the same grape, the Tempranillo grape, as a base. You can also have other things in it like uh, Grenache and all that stuff. But yeah, um, generally, I don't think you can go wrong with it. This is a Crianza by Baronia. Uh, 2017, it was like nine quid. Um, my pro tip has always been, if you're a Costco member, their Kirkland Rioja Reserve, life changing. It's like six it's bucks. Al it's always the same. It's not like Trader Joe's where. No, it's always the same. Um, no, it's not like Trader Joe's. It's like not not like two buck chuck, which we should explore because there's a lot of um, legend around that. But yeah, no, I also think it's changed a lot since Trader Joe's is now the juggernaut that it is. It's probably had to stabilize its production stream a little bit. Yeah, and I'm I don't think that the legend was actually ever that true. Anyway, but we should we should talk about that with a little bit more research. Maybe in the next yeah. episode we can talk about that. But yeah, so th it's it's very good. I only opened it uh, this evening. And the first thing that hit me was like, it was like, almost like, um, this is going to make it sound bad. Um, but like, like a cherry hard candy, mm -hmm. 
you know i was yeah. watching i was on a flight recently and i was watching uh mid-morning matters the alan partridge thing and he does a wine tasting bit and describes the wine as tasting like chewits our <laughs> british listeners will understand that reference but yeah so it's good it's good it's getting the job done it's uh making things um a little bit better <laughs> i um i had a bottle of wine the other day which was from, uh, I believe it was still the Western Cape, but it's it's South African. And I hadn't had a South African white in forever, but it was really, I think I always used to find them too big and too bold and not nuanced. And I think that's kind of what I wanted. And it like, sort of like punched you in the face and it was like, this is a big white, I like that. Big white. Um, yeah, I'm so used to big reds um, from South Africa, but yeah, it was good. It was called um, Secateurs. Was the name of nice. The As in, oh, I think I might have also had that recently. I think it, I've seen it in a few places. It's like huh, twenty. It was like twenty bucks through my recycling. <laughs> <laughs> I don't drink a lot of white. In fact, it's funny. I was just thinking when you said that. I remember it being in a restaurant in California, like quite a long time ago, because that's why this is funny. And the and the waiter was taking our, our wine orders and was like, uh, "Would you like red or white?" I'm like, "I'm definitely, you know, definitely red. I'm not a big white guy." And my friend goes, "Yes, you are." <laughs> and I was and I was like, "This isn't funny. This we're having a serious dinner and everybody else was dying." But uh, yeah, I have <laughs> to go back funny. and look and see if that's what I had. But so tell me about the food. You clearly had something that was noteworthy. Yeah, so I had to do a. Um, I've introduced my entire extended family to the Spice House, which is where I got all my spices. Yeah, out of, out of Chicago, and I got you know, my in-laws the, uh, you know, a sampler pack for Christmas, and my sister-in-law some some different ones as well. And my wife, every time I need to hit like the minimum orders, um, she's like, "Oh, please get me more of this this garden dill dip." I'm not a big dill guy, but the rest of my family is and they love their dill dips and so every time i have to order something from there i always have to get like a flat pack of the of the, the garden guild dill dip but i needed to do an uptick on um a couple of things i needed some new cumin some new um some new peppers some new uh, salt some good good kosher salt um and one of the things i i got that i had run out of and i thought that eh, doesn't make that much of a difference was ground ginger and like mm. I always have fresh ginger in the house and stuff like that. And so I did a stir fry the other night and Kate was like, wow, this is like one of the best stir fries you've done in forever. What's different? And I had marinated the chicken in like a crap ton of ground ginger. And it gave such a roundness depth of flavor because you're like searing the meat first. And it gives that sort of like, you know, almost like warm ginger cookie, gingerbread feet, like taste uh, to it as like, and I don't mean that in a sweet way. I mean that in sort of like that, background hum tang yeah yeah exactly and i feel like ginger just gives a flavor that's so often neglected when people are trying to do especially like south south chinese food mm -hmm. at home and uh you know my hands were stained for a while because i used to also use a lot of turmeric but it just shows how if you keep them prepared if you if you if you go to your parents house and you see you know ginger from like two years ago it's not gonna have the same punch this was ground when i made the order and so it will last about three months and then it will lose its punch. And like, I am diligent about how I keep them and they're in airtight containers out of sunlight, blah, 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 blah. So I will get more than the average person out of it, but you've got to, you know, be aware of that. So it was, that was really, really good. But the other thing I bought just because it was on recommended in the same thing and Alton Brown has been raving about it. Like whenever he does shakshuka, he's like, you have to use this exact pepper. And it's really hard to find due to what's going on in Syria but 
if you can get it, it's amazing. And I thought, I've never bought Aleppo peppers. Mm. So I'm going to buy some. And I bought some, and it's like this. Dried or fresh? Dried. Like ground. And I was like. Oh. Yeah. Like the chunks. Like it looks like. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, like chili flakes. Yeah, exa- exactly like chili flakes. It is a, it is a chili. It's a capsaicin. Um, and it's like this deep ruby color. And then like I'm like, I don't really know what I'm supposed to be expecting to have on the nose. And I smell it. And you get this strong smell of um, the, the, the tasting notes say dried raisins or raisins. Mm. But the, another note is sun-dried tomatoes. And that is exactly what it smells like. And so anything that you would use a sun-dried tomato on, if you want a bit more of a kick, try and find Aleppo peppers. They are fantastic. Nice. You can get them. Uh, you can grow them yeah. yourself. I don't think they technically count as that they would be. You know, Tumbridge Wells peppers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, what's another one we need to do an episode on? Is chilies. We did chili. We did chili the meat stew, but we should yeah. probably do one. Okay, well, we're gonna have to go around the horn again. <laughs> oh, well, I sent I sent you and our other brother Andrew a picture of this, and I did it again last night. I don't know why, but the, we had a little burst of warmish weather here, and I was like. I have to barbecue, and I just like I I, I cleaned up my my Weber uh, kettle and got it all going. Taught my eldest son how to, you know, put he's ten, put all of the um, the coals in the chimney and how to light it and all that. And he was like massively disinterested. But I thought, no, we're going to have some father and son bonding. Get back here <laughs> with your fortnights and all that. And um, I smoked in this sort of slightly pedestrian definition of it a whole chicken and by by sm- really what i did was i smoked a couple of pieces of, of wood chip or did i say what did i say soaked a couple of pieces of wood for about an hour lit the chimney made two piles on either side and i do this with my thanksgiving turkey every year as well mm-hmm. so i'm reasonably well versed but this is so brainlessly easy um put a couple of chunks of the wet wood on there let the kettle come up to temperature for about five minutes and then whole decent sized chicken uh right in the middle some basic rub it doesn't really matter what it is an hour uh in i take it off and i slather it in um barbecue sauce the boys love this uh trader joe's carolina gold um, carolina style barbecue like that really tangy stuff mm-hmm. So it gets this beautiful bronze crust in the last 15 minutes of cooking. And then we had it with like, just like the, 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 the old school fixing. So we had like stovetop stuffing, mac and cheese, ton of different vegetable, roasted vegetables, asparagus. And it's just such a satisfying and easy meal. And all of, you know, all three of my kids just, just love it. And, uh, you know, covered in more barbecue sauce. There's just something very satisfying about that meal. It's so, so easy. And my neighbors are knocking on my door going, what is that amazing <laughs> smell? <laughs> that smell is not a smell you smell. I said smell way too much. Uh, in in England, especially the, the rural backwoods of southern England very often, which is American-style barbecue sauce. No, you get – you're right. You get a lot of people barbecuing around here, which is a lovely smell, especially when it's – and bonfires and stuff. So there's, there's always that wafting smoke. But, yeah, I think the smoking meat mm-hmm. – and although it's 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 very popular in this country now, it's it's become especially I don't know why, 
but it definitely seems like a a, a northern thing. Like interesting. The, our friends in the north have adopted smoking meat smoking. I think Manchester and Birmingham, especially Liverpool to an extent, are very innovative when it comes and, and very open minded when it comes to to food outside of London. Uh, you don't see that south of London. I don't think as much. So there was so, yeah, a, you're right. There was a um, I can't remember what, Jamie and Jimmy's Friday night dinners. Or whatever. Oh yeah, yeah. The yeah, one yeah. when he's he's got his own little place at the end of uh, South End Pier, and they always do like a celebrity come over, cook their favorite dish, and then they also you know mid uh, the second act of of it is always them on some sort of you know crusade to promote some dying art form within yeah. cooking in England. And one of the ones was like not dying with resurgence or just like a brand new thing, which was like, eight, there was like some stat was like 80% of England's charcoal is brought in, imported. And it's like, none of it is, um, is it from sustainable forests? Is it oh, from yeah. places Importante. like that? Yeah, exactly. And uh, they, were, they were meeting with a company that was doing their own in like, it wasn't the new forest, but it was somewhere near there. And they're doing like the Japanese style, like the really long sticks that are like purple. Yeah, so they like, were used for, used for yakitori. Exactly. And I was like, wow, man, I'm sure it's like 100 pounds a bag, uh, but like I'm sure it's really, really good. I found that charcoal here is very hit and miss. Um, and I started ordering Weber. Yeah. Weber brand charcoal on the internet because the – the, the the stuff you can get outside of supermarkets and gas stations here, uh, I found either burns doesn't burn hot enough, or doesn't burn long enough. Uh, so, um, and you know for for anything that's, you know you you you're gonna use a gas grill. There's no point in doing like burgers on a Weber. It's dumb. It doesn't yeah. it doesn't work well. If you your your kettle is gonna be for anything that takes more than half an hour to cook, half an hour to twelve hours. But um, Anyway, so yeah, that was very, very satisfying. But uh, yeah, we were talking about uh, E and what we were going to do for E. Unfortunately, sorry, our friends in the homeland of England. It's just not going to happen. Um, but we were like Eritrea, Egypt, Egypt Estonia, Estonia, Eswatini. Which is yeah, there was a few. Estonia, I could have had a, I could have had a good shout, a good, but we were like, we've, we're, we're really focused on Europe. We need to, we need to expand our horizons. Uh, we hadn't done anywhere in Africa yet, and so obviously, well, not obviously, because there are more than one country in Africa that begins I, with E. Yeah, I meant two already. Yeah, but we uh, thought, we could yeah, have done with Eritrea, Ethiopia, I Ethiopia, thought. yeah, Ethiopia. <laughs> have you been there? I have not. But I've eaten a lot of their food, and it was really fun researching this episode because the food, especially, we'll get into this, something in the, this in a second, but especially in America, is everywhere, literally everywhere. You can go to any moderately sized city, and you'll find an Ethiopian restaurant. This is true, and I remember in the early 90s, uh, our friend, your godmother, Mary Goldsmith, uh, the late, great Mary Goldsmith, being very enthusiastic about an Ethiopian place. I feel like it was in Berkeley. Very Oh, yeah, there, there are two really famous ones in Berkeley. And I remember, like, this was, like, without exaggeration, like, 1993, 1994. And she was always, like, very adventurous, uh, multicultural uh, enthusiast. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought, Ethiopia, don't, do they even have food? That's the thing is like one of the big assumptions was like, and you, like this is what drives me nuts about how little 
attention we pay to the Horn of Africa, unless it's Somali pirates, it's, you know, everyone's misconception right now is Ethiopia is this war-torn, famine-derived country that can't rub two lima beans together. That's not the true at all. But the stereotype is because of that. Yeah. The reason being that we went to a place in Berkeley in the nine, in the early 90s is because, and the reason that you can find a Ethiopian place in everywhere in America is because there was a huge refugee movement from yeah. Ethiopia to North America in the late 80s and 90s. And that's why often, you know, there are like, without, without, uh, I, without doubt, if I have, um, well, back in the day when I used to take Uber, if I always started ch chatting to one of the guys, without a doubt, if they were from Africa, maybe one out of three of them would be from Ethiopia, There's yeah. a, especially in San Francisco. I had that, too, and we had a really interesting conversation about the relationship between Ethiopia and Eritrea and because they're obviously neighbors and they've mm -hmm. had a – I mean, things are good right now as of like a week ago, which is great. But it wasn't. It wasn't always. Eritrea was part of Ethiopia for for a very long time, and the the period that you're referring to with with the mass um, exodus, the mass exodus was during this period from 1974 to 1991, where there was this horrendously failed attempt at communism in Ethiopia. But, and that's for our generation and probably generation before and probably even after ours. That that's what we we think of. There was mm -hmm. you know. We're, famine and and mass exodus and war and um, genocide but as a country it's had uh, the most amazing and mixed and frankly successful existence i mean with with haile selassie in the early part of the 20th century and uh he was like Times Man of the Year. They were the first, um, I think, first African country to be part of the League of Nations. That sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they were a very progressive uh, um, and and innovative. Um, I mean, progressive in a, in almost every sense, politically, religiously, in, in not just in in Africa but in the world. So it's 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 a shame, as you say, that we just think of this very, very narrow period in the big scheme of things where our impression of this country was cast in stone, unfortunately. Yeah, but, it's it's somewhat like somewhat like Cuba as well, where our perception yeah. of uh, everybody who came who left uh, Cuba to move to Miami or the rest of South America, South Southern North America. Uh, those are the people who are going to be telling us what it was like in the past, even though that they've gone through a massive, uh, you know, change in the last 25 years. Um, what is interesting about Ethiopia now is that they need to hire the Rwandan tourism board. Like what Rwanda is going through now where it's like, look at us, we're like bloated and, you know, everyone is, um, you know, really pushing forward into this country first let's get back on our feet and let's invest yeah. in our infrastructure mentality. Let's get tourism over here. Ethiopia was doing that 10 years ago, yeah. but like no one is paying attention to it. No, Just not since... nearly as much as they should. I mean, I think <clears throat> they've got an outstanding airline, uh, brilliant airline uh, mm -hmm. that flies all over the world. Tech sector. They have, yeah. they have yeah, absolutely a booming tech sector. Um, they're, as you say, they're investing heavily in their, in, in infrastructure as well. Uh, but again, I mean, you're right. They need to. There's a slight rebranding thing here, but because there's, there's, they have ambassadors all over the world in the the, the people that that fled during this 
difficult period in their in their existence who have brought with them as so many you know members of a of a broad diaspora do their food mm-hmm. and you know my first food experience ethiopian food experience was with our other brother andrew in in camberwell i think in london okay. maybe 15 or 16 years ago and it was my first introduction to any food of that region and i completely fell in love with it have you been I've been once a long, long time ago, not for very long, when I was a narrow-minded youth. Why were you there? Um, I was trying to get to South Africa. Oh, okay. Back when we used to have to fly every other direction except for due south from England. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I think I was coming from Hong Kong. I don't uh, know where I was coming from, but yeah. Um, and uh, I didn't. I appreciate my my very brief time there, and I'm I'm looking forward to to getting back there as soon as I can. Yeah, absolutely. And so for me, it was obviously I don't really remember Mary Goldsmith taking us at like what I would have been four if I went at all, and I probably didn't because I was a picky eater back then. Um, but yeah, there were no, there were multiple places in in Berkeley where I used to live that were Ethiopian restaurants, and uh, I went with a the coworker once um about 10 years ago and that's when i i fell in love with it and um you know we should probably probably get into some of the things that we had yeah I, you know it's funny because i remember going i was it was with uh with andrew and luke and gabby uh who are um andrew's oldest and dearest friends they live in the middle east now and, and gabby's originally from kenya Gabby, yeah. So uh, this would have been, um, you know, in her in her wheelhouse. And one of the things that, uh, and I didn't know this at the time, that is ubiquitous not just for Ethiopian food, but for many of the Horn of African countries, is this what what in Ethiopia is called injera, mm-hmm. which is like how would you describe? It? It's like a big flatbread. But yeah. it it also serves as the, as the platter for these a lot of the food is communal and we'll come on to that and it's like a it's like a thin sourdough almost um, it's about the size of a very 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 large pizza really a hubcap basically a hubcap. <laughs> yeah there you go perfect flat porous and I rem it's it you know. You you probably have four or five dishes, everybody, you will, and everybody listening to this, where you can remember like it was yesterday the first time you tried it. You know the 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 taste and the sensation. And I remember taking take tasting it after the waiter came in and told us how to eat it, and going. That's unlike anything I've ever eaten in my life. Yeah, because it's got this tang. Mm-hmm. And I can't compare it to anything else. And it was, I will admit, initially off-putting, but then I couldn't meant to have get it enough by of itself. It. You're meant to, so yeah, yeah, yeah. So the injera is the serving plata, the plate, and also the, the utensil. The utensil, because you use it to pick up like almost like a dosa or a crepe. Um, and what is we'll go into it a little bit more and the reason that like you know you never had a flavor like it before i'll explain what it is so it's a sour fermented flatbread made with teff and teff is a cereal of the northeast african area otherwise known as williams lovegrass which i think was a great uh, funk name for me back in the 70s <laughs> um which is is uh 
the the point you made, like I never tried anything before this. The reason that we only eat a handful of cereal crops and only eat a handful in the global perspective of vegetables and a handful of 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 uh, meat is not because they're the tastiest or most nutritious. They were just the easiest to cultivate thousands upon thousands of years ago. And right. teff is a cereal that is endemic to, you know, like I said, the Horn of Africa. And it just never really, it's quite labor intensive to, to, to use. And so, yeah, if any, if your wheat, as it were, is made out of this, out of this grass that you've never had before, then, you know, it's going to taste a little different, but it is sour. It is a sourdough basically. And you mentioned that it's, um, it's porous, mm. but only on one side because of the, the, the yeast, the side that it's in contact with the cooking, like it basically, it's a griddle that it's made into poured onto and, and made into like a crepe. That side's going to be like, you know, smooth. And the other side's going to bubble up. Like before you flip over a, a pancake, you sometimes get those bubbles. That's sort of like the uniformity, but it's way, way smaller bubbles. Um, and the way that it works is they use this thing called airshow, which is a clear yellow liquid that accumulates on the surface of the fermenting teff flour, and it's collected, and then it's you know put into each each subsequent batch. And so it's basically their version of a sourdough mother, and you use that and to pass it down from family to family to make this flat kind of gray in most scenarios. Um, starch and it accounts for teff itself the, the the base plant accounts for two-thirds of the daily protein intake that an average uh ethiopian will will take in during the day uh, during during their daily consumption so it is incredibly important to eritrea and ethiopia a lot of what we're going to talk about is also relevant to a lot of eritrean uh, culture yeah. as well yeah and remember they were very they were the same place for a long time yep hold, uh, hold on one second i think i need to let my cat out okay <laughs> Let the cat out of the bag, as it were. Dad joke. Um, but yeah, so what's what's really interesting about about teff, it, the, the the base ingredient is that you can now find it in some of your better grocery stores right next to your your quinoa and your and your uh, uh, sorghum and your somewhat less known cereals um pretty much in, in any major city so that is a direct correlation to the supply and demand like the ethiopian dis diaspora in, in the u.s they're obviously going to want access to their yeah to the foods to the home stuff yeah and, and that's i mean that's one of the things that that uh, the u.s should be should be so proud of i remember listening to an M npr podcast i think it was from kqed about a chap a he was African. I can't remember where exactly where he was from, but he was like, you know, it's not, you know, a potato is great, but it's not quite the same as what we had. So he just started growing all of these ingredients or, that, yeah. that he that he needed and wanted to recreate the dishes from home. And that, you know, as as so often is with these stories, that kind of you know, snowballed into a, a going concern. But it's so nice to be able to get all of these, uh, you know, 10 years ago, they would have been impossible to find. And now you can recreate these. Absolutely. So, so what would so you've got your you've got your platter slash uh, you know utensil, which we'll come on to about the utensil bit in a minute. What do you have on that? Everything, like literally, somewhat similar to like Middle Eastern food. The food you know would be placed on top of a platter that you would all share. But like this, they would. It's almost like oh god, what is, I'm just going to draw a blank on the name, like. Tiffin boxes? Is that what I'm thinking yeah. of? Yeah, oh, yeah. The tiffin is the stackable things that. You... Yeah, but like each, like, you know, the 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 
the server will tally. Tally, thank you. We'll we'll have you know spoon each dish onto the larger platter, and so you'll have lots of different things to try with your mm. with your injera. So the the thing that probably is the most famous um, outside of the injera that you'd find on here is is what W A T yeah. or W O T depending on regional variations, which is basically their version of a stew or a curry. Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the things that stands out about Ethiopian food is how, is that it's generally quite spicy. Uh, mm -hmm. That's a, a recurring theme. And that's because of one of the main staple ingredients, which is berber, which is a spice mix of chili powder, and then things like cardamom, fenugreek, coriander, cloves, ginger, nutmeg, allspice, that type of thing, cumin. And it's added in, you know, various amounts to almost everything. And it's a base ingredient of, of what, along with red onion, mm -hmm. um, and then uh, turmeric often as well. Um, and then you... It, 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 a meat, beef, uh, or chicken, fish, and goat. Never pork, oh, very, very rarely pork, because mm. um, it's religiously forbidden in many in many instances. There's a really there is some really interesting religious history for for Ethiopia. There can, is so so. There's the the lost tribe of Solomon, which is um, the the African Jewish population, and there was that very famous. I forget the name of the like it was they got the like the coolest like code name ever. It's like, you know, Operation Jericho or something like that. Oh, I can't remember what it was, but it was during the seventies. Mass 70, evacuation. Mass evacuation of Jewish population from most from human beings on a single airplane in history. Really? Mm -hmm. It was in the seventies, right? Correct. Cool. Yeah, I'm butchering my individual uh, facts there, but yeah, it was it was it had a really cool sort of like if uh if israel is writing action thrillers it would be like their name of like the avengers or something like that i'm just gonna drive me nuts until you pull it up no you're right it was, it was operation it was operation solomon solomon and it was um it was yeah the, i think it was like paul and i talked about this on a layer of his episode i think it was it was well over a thousand people on on a 747 wow and right. it was like we're either going to get off the ground or we're not, but we're going to do this. And I th they did like 14,000 people in, in, a, in a day and a half. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, it, it was a big deal. So um, obviously there's a large Jewish – was a large Jewish population, but still is. Fun um, fact, two fun yeah. facts. So the the passenger manifest, like the, there was 1,000 people. They took off with 1,000 people and landed with 1,002 people. Because two people gave birth? Yep. That's awesome. Isn't that crazy? That's yeah. so cool. I think there's um, a movie about it. Worth, 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 worth checking out. And then the other thing is that the Rastafarian movement started in Ethiopia. Yeah, with, so. with Haile Selassie. Exactly. So everyone associates that with Jamaica. And yes, there are more uh, Rastafarian. Rastafarianism is is basically now it's just a fact of home is Jamaica. But um, you know they they abstain from a lot of different types of of uh, food as well, um, and a lot of that can be traced back to to Ethiopian food culture. Yeah, and they have, as part of that uh, religious mandate, I guess, if you will, is um, they have like over a hundred days of fasting per year. Oh, wow. I think it's, I think maybe even like 150. 
And one of the the dishes that's traditionally used to break that fast is doro wat, D-O-R-O. So wat being the stew or curry, and doro is, uh, I don't actually know what it means, but it's like, it's curried chicken, mm-hmm. boiled eggs um, in a in a tomato-based sauce. It is absolutely delicious. It's Yeah, if so anything was going to be the national dish... This would be like you. I I I don't really want to say injera is the uh, national dish because it's really more like everything else goes on top of it. But so if you wanted a real dish, dora what is what you'd be looking for. Yeah, and it's it's spicy. It's a great way to sort of wake you from your fasting slumber. Mm-hmm. Um, it's yeah, it's it's just absolutely delicious. I actually don't know if there's traditionally tomatoes in it. I feel like probably not. Um, but onions, garlic, that's Berber spice mix that I, I mentioned earlier. Um, but it, yeah, it, oh my God. But it's this beautiful red color. Yeah. And then, so there's, like you said, there's a bunch of different watts. And the ones that you might find a lot of are, uh, so this, the, the Dora Watch chicken, uh, Sega Watt, which sounds like such like a, I don't know, <laughs> video game console. Se- yeah, Sega. Um, yeah, b- a beef, right? Beef. And so you got key Sega Watt, which means spicy, and Alchia Sega Watt, which is mild beef Watt. So, you know, if you're ever in a place and it says uh, key, it probably means it's going to be a little on the spicier side. Um, but yeah, you can also do vegetable Watts and, uh, and, and fish. Um, although Ethiopia is 100% landlocked, uh, I always forget that, um, you know, they get, they get sort of cordoned off by Somalia in that, in that Somalia. Top. Yeah. And, and Djibouti. Yeah. Uh, they have exactly. a little bit of, and then Eritrea, which, uh, so they don't have access to any coast anymore. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but I, I do want to jump onto something that you mentioned earlier, which is the things that like, you'll find ubiquitous in it, sir. The, um, the spice blend we've talked about, but the thing that you'll find in almost everything, which is their version of, um, vegetable oil is Nita Kabir which is uh, their spiced butter. So it's like it's like ghee. It's a clarified butter, so it's got a very high smoke point. And then it's uh, spiced with lots of different regional spices, but most often uh, sacred basil, which is their version of basil, fenugreek, cumin, and turmeric. Um, and that will be used to when you're sauteing the vegetables for the beginning of the stew or anything else. You'll find this clarified butter throughout almost every single dish in Ethiopian cooking. And they do that out of necessity because when they're fasting for almost half the year, and I'm not saying they're, they don't eat for 150 days, they're spread, obviously spread out. And it's like the same kind of similar to Ramadan and, the, and fasting, but it is very strict and they can't use animal fat during that period. So right. they came up with this, uh, this oil with which they can, uh, they can do everything else you'd do with an oil. Right, because uh, Clarified Butters had all the milk fats removed from it. Nailed it. Yeah. Um, and then there's, so basically that's very common in this dish called kitfo, which is kind of like their version of steak tartare. Um, it's, you know, very coarsely chopped, usually beef um, that is then mixed with the, the spiced butter and uh, mit mida, which is a different kind of uh, spice mix, which has African bird's eye chilies, Ethiopian mm. cardamom, cloves, and salt, and it's ground and also gives a deep red color. Um, and then, you know, with the with the uh, with the spice butter as well, and you'll often find that uh, as an extra, you know, another dollop on your on your 
in Jira next to your Watt as well. Yeah, I read, it's funny. I was reading about um, that particular dish on a um, like a, a travel site, and one of the things they said was it it's really good. Um, you can have it raw, but you might get tapeworm. So maybe don't, because you can have you can have it raw, which is like the the, the traditional local way, or lebleb, which is lightly cooked um, or fully cooked. And uh, yeah, so I, I I was rather amused by that. Um, it's I, good. I, we might get tapeworm. So yeah, so you might get that if you have like a long John Silver's fish sandwich as well. So pick your poisons. Yeah, true. Um, and then there's you know the probably the most famous sort of. Um, proponent of, of Ethiopian food in the world right now is Marcus Samuelson, who is a very famous chef. He's got a, places, a couple places in the U.S. Um, he is Scandinavian um, Ethiopian, like his parents were were uh, refugees, and so he's now doing a big thing on his, on his original homeland. And one of the things that he talks about a lot as being sort of one of his favorite Ethiopian dishes is Tibbs which is the sort of stir fry of that region. And that's yes. like cooked with lots of vegetables and less stewy like a wat, more sort of quick, more like 20-minute uh, meals kind of thing. Weirdly, in the um, aborted Alex Travel Channel show Backstreet Bites, we talked about that because you could get very, very good Sega Tibbs in Borough Market. That uh, was exactly how you describe it. So Sega Beef... Tibbs is this, is this sort of, you know, chopped, as you say, like stir fry steak tips almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Spicy, very mm -hmm. spicy, but most Ethiopian or of the food in that or food in that region is. Uh, yeah, it's delicious. Absolutely delicious. Very satisfying. Yeah. And so there's like, obviously, there's tons of other dishes that you'll run into a lot of um, a lot of vegetables, a lot of um uh, almost like uh, porridges um, that you'd find made with a lot of the cereals that you'd find in Ethiopia. But if you're going to go, like, chances are, if you're listening to us, you're more likely to go find a Ethiopian restaurant in your city than going all the way to Addis Ababa. Um, and so as your first step, the, the, the dishes that we just mentioned are, we, they are meat heavy, but they are what are, you're going to be on, on the menu, they're going to be the equivalent of the, the tikka masala or the rogan josh when you go to an Indian, they will be on the mm -hmm. menu. So I want to steer you towards things that you're likely to come across and, and are definitely worth worth a try. And they're not as big as like other Indian, like as Indian cultures are, where it comes to like the sort of communal, like lots of dishes here with the condiments. It seems to be pretty much everything is on the plate. Yeah, yeah, and that's kind of nice. I mean, it's I do love those communal style uh, eating experiences, especially when you're slightly out of your comfort zone and you can see what people do. And, you know, one of the things you learn very quickly in that part of the world, and we were talking about this right before we started recording that, uh, and this is the case throughout the world where generally utensils aren't used, you always use your right hand. Yes. So when you break off the injera to, to scoop up a piece of uh, deliciousness, you always, always, always use your right hand, never your left hand. And that's the same in throughout Africa and through the Middle East where that's the case and some many, many parts of India and through, uh, mm -hmm. throughout Asia. And generally it's because the left hand is deemed unclean. 
um, because you are taking care of personal hygiene generally with that hand. But it's now just it's 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 a custom as well. No matter if your hands are both just as clean as each other, you still always use your right hand. Yeah, absolutely. And also, like much of the North Africa, um, Ethiopia is big on on hospitality and certain rules around. Um, you know, what's to expect is when you are a guest and certain, certain um, traditions. And one of the big ones is uh, Gersha, which is that a, the specific guest of honor, or if there's a couple of you, uh, you may be hand-fed food. And it's usually the, like the best, what they deem to be the best part of a meal. Um, you know, generally the head of the household will come over and shove some food in your mouth. And uh, that's a, a sign of respect. So don't, don't you know, Saying no is okay, but be very sort of polite about it. Uh, and why, why would you say no? It's usually going to be the best bite of the entire meal. Uh, you know that's uh, referenced in The Simpsons, right? No? Which episode? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, the, I mean, we're talking on. like the 20s, oh, season Jesus. 20. So, yeah, you, you have to sit through all that garbage. But, yeah. <laughs> Um, there was, I was reading another one on the on the etiquette, which is there's this warring faction between certain areas of, of Ethiopia on, like, should you finish everything that's on your plate or not? And this seems to be quite a common thing with certain countries that dealt with, um, you know, times of privation and hardship, which is if you if you you should leave food on your plate because it shows the the host has fed you enough that you can leave a little bit. But if you eat all of it, it also shows that you had a great time. And so it's like this, you not aren't sure what you're supposed to do. Yeah. And so there's a lot of those things that are kind of, you know, they were a thing, yeah. a thing. And now they're not so yeah. much anymore. And it's like, what do you adhere to? You know, it's difficult. <laughs> um, do you want to jump into, uh, into the national drinks a little bit more. We should talk had, about the drinks. I think uh, you had a nice little gateway one, drug. The gateway. Yeah. The there's one that I I rather like um, called Tella. Did you come across this? No. Tella is basically homebrew, <laughs> homebrew beer. Okay. And it's um, it's one of the most common thing like drinks you make in 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 homes during during the holidays, but also you, you, you go to like a, a, as opposed to going to a brew pub, you would go to a telehouse and it's made from, from barley. Okay. Um, so and it's, it's like beer. but it's like, it's, it, it is a beer. It's a traditional beer. Mm-hmm. Um, sorghum, funnily enough that you mentioned earlier is in there, but depending on where you are, barley, wheat, sometimes even maize, believe it or not. And you, they add bread to the, to, to the pot in which it's being made. Um, which has been smoked. The bread's already been smoked. Okay. And so the, the this drink has a smoky flavor to it. It's nothing crazy. It's like it's the same potency as beer, so like five to six percent. Uh so I've I've never actually had it, but now I'm very, very curious to try it. Well, this actually makes a lot of sense because there was a piece in my in my research for the actual national drink. I was like, that doesn't make any sense. What was everyone else drinking? And the national drink is Tesh, which is T-E-J, which is a honey wine. So very much mm-hmm. like mead and anyone else. Uh, it's about 7 to 12%. And it's honey, water, and gesho, which is a, a, a plant from, again, and most of Africa, most of Eastern Africa. Very, very like, uh, very like uh, um, hops. Uh, that you would use for flavor and has some medicinal qualities about it as well, which sometimes can be slightly effervescent. Um, and 
apparently all the Westerners or the Europeans, when they came to visit your, uh, uh, Ethiopia in the 15 and 1600s, they all thought it was amazing. There's two things about the history that I was like, that's weird. One, some food historians believe that this is the oldest alcoholic beverage ever discovered in the world. Wow, really? They, yeah, some people think that it's like 500 BC. But I think that was a, like one guy is saying that other people are saying that when the Greeks came in like 80 BC, that that has been well established that they were drinking this wow. Tej stuff. Um, the other thing that I read was that up until like the 1900s, it was strictly for nobility. Yeah, only the king. Yes, or those in the presence of the yeah, king. Yeah, you had to be like there with him. Exactly, which I thought was weird. Because, like, what was everyone else drinking? And then, to your point, you just told me what Tej. they were drinking. Or exactly. Tej. Yeah. But now everybody drinks Tej, if you, you know, if that's your jam. Yes. And it's it's um, supposedly, or at least it's the scapegoat for um, quite a big rise in alcoholism in Ethiopia. Because everyone has it now? Yeah. And it's 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 it has a sort of sociocultural significance. In Ethiopia, because it's always at, it's like, you know, it's intertwined with culture. It's always there at these celebrations. Mm. Um, and it's also um, homebrewed. Mm. So um, you get unfiltered, you get high methanol concentration, which isn't good for you. Interestingly, though, on the flip side of that coin, there are two components of the drink which are have very very positive health benefits it uh it has a um microorganism that is potentially considered an alzheimer's treatment yeah that comes from the the gersho the, yeah yeah uh and it's also an anti-inflammatory and antioxidant uh, and um yet to be confirmed but early studies show that it could have anti-malarial properties as well. So you can see why people are like, drink this if you don't want to get malaria. And also you can have liver disease at the same time. Just like a G&T. Exactly. Well, exactly. That good old quinine. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I do think it's interesting with the Tej that the, um, the, 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 the Gersho in it, that uh, it's like if I put a emergency effervescent tablet in a Nuki Brown, like – Sure, those chemicals are there, but is it yeah. going to be canceled out? Like, is the alcohol yeah. going to kill the Alzheimer helping, or are there really low cases of Alzheimer's in Ethiopia? So that's a you know, I guess yeah, that's worth yeah, that's worth exploring. Yeah, uh, I, I feel like we can't close out this episode with talking about probably one of the the beverage that Ethiopia is most associated with and most responsible for the billions of dollars Starbucks makes every year. Yeah. It is coffee. where where coffee came from. Coffee yeah. arabica is from, which is eighty percent of the world's produce comes from or the arabica bean, comes from Ethiopia. Yeah, and I think it, we don't we don't really give it enough credit because coffee comes. You know, we think of Colombia and we think of Sumatra. Exactly, other parts of the world. I mean, we do talk about Ethiopia. And we think of we think of coffee, or we think of when we think of coffee, we we, we tend to think of Ethiopia. But yeah, it is. Uh, it is almost certainly uh, originating from Ethiopia. And it's a very important part of their economy uh, as well, of course. And there's a, there's a sort of ceremony involved in it where the coffee is boiled and the, the beans are roasted. 
popcorn is a part of it as well. I think it's one of those things like, you know, alongside being being fed uh, the injera by by a, a host, this, this, this ceremony of coffee preparation and, and serving is uh, is very, very important to Ethiopian cultural identity uh, mm. and etiquette as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, I was doing some reading on, on sort of like how there's been this disconnect again, like back to the very, very start, like how the world has sort of glossed over the changes that uh, Ethiopia has made to itself that big people like Illy, the coffee company and, mm -hmm. and Starbucks have purposely not marketed Ethiopian coffee, even though that's where it all came from, as much as others due to this negative connotation of Ethiopia. Until uh, there was a case with Oxfam got involved and was like, guys, you really need to start pr promoting this so that the Ethiopian farmers can get some sort of like um, cachet. Yeah, it's fine to talk about fair trade, you know, but if you're not doing it with, <laughs> you know, for the country that, that really you wouldn't exist if you if if, it, if they didn't exist mm. or you know then you really need to to start giving them their dues literally exactly. and figuratively yeah so anyone who's been to ethiopia let us know you know what your experience was like when you went have you seen the changes on the ground uh, if you have had it in the u.s or any sort of other mm. you know major metropolitan city like what is your go-to meal and if you're a Rastafarian, let us know what you're eating. So we yeah. have many Rastafarian listeners, but you never know. Yeah, well, you know, exactly. That's the beautiful thing about the internet. Uh, I think it would be uh, – I don't think you can go to many places um, around the world without having a, a, a large Ethiopian community. But interestingly, so the U.S. has the biggest Ethiopian community. Israel has the second largest Ethiopian diaspora in the world. Which makes sense because of you know, what it we does. just talked about. It does. I would also say um, Scandinavia would probably be pretty high. Scandinavia, yeah. Uh, so it, the U.S., Israel, then interestingly the UAE. Okay. Lebanon, which has always opened its doors to, to, to those in need. Uh, Italy, Sweden, and then the U.K. Um, and you go anywhere in London and you will find decent Ethiopian restaurants. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Alrighty. So, um, next episode F is the Faroe uh, you know, Islands its own country. What's that? Is it the Faroe Islands? You know, it's country? weird that I was thinking that, uh, earlier today on my run, I was like, that would be, they're part England. of Denmark or they're a Danish colony. They're like probably Denmark, but they get to play in their own, like as their own team when it comes to Euro qualifiers and get spanked 50 nil by, uh, you know, Andorra. So we have some interesting ones. We have Fiji, where our father lived briefly, Finland, France, obviously. And then you've got like French Guyana, French Polynesia. Yeah. And that's really it. it uh, yeah. Every once in a while I ask uh, the Echo, I don't want to say her name because she'll start talking to me. You know, what countries begin with this? And we're in a dark spot right now. There's not many E's. There's not many D. There were not many D's, E's, and F's. Um, when we get to G, interesting countries. Very interesting countries, yeah. When we get to G, it sort of balloons out a bit, and then H shrinks down a bit, and you know. But there's some interesting ones. We're, we're all trying not to break the rules too many with special administrative regions and stuff like that. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, say Hong Kong will be a fight, you know. <laughs> exactly. Well, that was one of the the, the stats I was gonna not stats, but like one of the facts I was like, what does Thailand and Ethiopia have in common? 
they're one of only two countries, or one of four countries, sorry, that has never um, been colonized by a European power. And but they did have an Italian. Yeah, That's why you war. can find pasta. Yeah, but they were never truly colonized. They were occupied. Occupied. Slightly. Okay, fair yes. enough. Fair enough. But yes, um, weirdly enough, but, you can find quite a lot of pasta in Ethiopia because but then of I was, that the, But the one of the things was like one of the other countries was like China, and I was like, "Fuck you!" Yes, they were. <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, for ninety nine years." God damn it! <laughs> I'm excited to edit that part. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Go Taiwan. No. <laughs> Macau, what the hell? You know? Yeah. yeah. That doesn't, mm. that doesn't <laughs> Exactly. Drive. Well, we come to, again, my favorite part of the episode. I butchered the last one, but I looked up a pronunciation guide on this one, so I feel a bit better. All right. Well, with Ethiopia, which actually pr- pr- provided uh, some bountiful material, we're, we're well over an hour. Yep. Uh, but until next time. Latinachin. All right. I feel like we should go in and add Google Translate after you say it, its pronunciation, <laughs> just to see how far, how close or you are. Or just get Greg to do it. Did you listen to his, uh, his, his podcast? Not yet. He is incredibly – I always forget that he's not this bumbling idiot that I used to get drunk with. Like he is an auteur. <laughs> yeah, great. Yeah. He's, he's a genius. Yeah, I will have to listen to that. Everybody, go and listen to. Uh, we'll post. We'll, we'll read. Oh, sorry, it. I didn't know we we're still recording. Greg, yeah. did, Greg, so Greg Banias did a did a fantastic podcast on what it is to be uh, to be a filmmaker in in the current world of we live in, especially during lockdown, and the importance of, of finding uh, beauty in the normalcy of your of your London flat. Yeah, he did a beautiful a little piece uh, during lockdown. So go listen to it. We'll post a link on the Twitter. But until next time, we've got it. Nailed it. Right, got it.